Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Clavio to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now there's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at Clavio.com slash Fox. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com backslash Fox. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. So I gather that you guys solved all the problems while I was gone, right? Mm hmm. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind and Jane Coaston. I pointed at the wrong people, but you guys can't see that uh, there. I do know which one is which. We've been working together a long time. Um, <laughs> this is definitely, we are off to a great start here. I'm awesome. just off an airplane. So, so, so Dara, Dara's right, right in the studio off an airplane. We were going to talk about something else, but while she was traveling, um, Trump seems to have set into motion a plan to kind of burn DHS yeah, leadership to the ground. Set into motion a plan is a slight exaggeration, okay. I believe. Things are happening. Of, so, yes. Okay, so what happened? So first, Kirsten Nielsen. No. I, this is where I think everyone's missing it. F- on Thursday night, d- Trump, like, very late at night, sent a letter to Congress saying that he was withdrawing the nomination of the dude who was who is currently, I think, still acting head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Uh, He had been like he had been doing the Trump thing where Trump nominated him the acting director and then like formally submitted the nomination to be the permanent director. And he'd had a vote in one of the committees that was supposed to approve his nomination, got approved. His vote got deferred in the other committee like that earlier that day. And then Trump suddenly rescinds the nomination. And like, honest to goodness, it was reportedly so abrupt uh, a decision that DHS didn't know about it. One DHS official told a reporter that it had been a paperwork error because, like, no one knew why this had happened. And Trump on Friday morning confirmed that it was not, in fact, a paperwork error, that that he was that he had uh, withdrawn Dude's nomination and, it, and said it was because we're going in a, quote, tougher direction, close quote, which the two data points of he didn't tell people at DHS he was doing this and he said he was doing this to go in a tougher direction. Generally, when you're doing this as a policy decision, you uh, communicate that to the other people who are making that policy. So that was a sign that like not all was well in Trump world uh, when it came to, I mean, obviously, the president is engaging in another round of his continued fixation with the border. He 
as we've said on this podcast before, there really are unprecedented numbers of families coming into the United States. There has been a precipitous increase in people crossing in the last few months. And Trump has, you know, started saying publicly, like, you know, we shouldn't let anybody in. We should say we're full. They should go back. And apparently this has also spread to his kind of private assessment of whether the people he's appointed are doing the right things. So that brings us to Sunday night when his DHS secretary, Christian Nielsen, uh, who had been in the position for a little bit over, well, she was nominated. She was confirmed in like late 2017 uh, and had been on the rocks a couple of times since then, but uh, formally submitted her resignation. And it soon became clear because her people were leaking to the press that that was not her decision. And then do we know like why? So like when Mattis left, you know, there were various things. You could write the whole story, tensions building, blah, 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 blah. But also there was like this specific Syria argument, yes. right? Uh, when Jeff Sessions left, of course, that was a whole, we, we lived right, and we died knew, a thousand lives. We knew why Jeff Sessions was going to leave like ages before Jeff Sessions actually left. Right. Right. So there are three levels to this. Um, the first is just kind of generally that you know, we knew in the past that Donald Trump did not think that Christian Nielsen was doing enough. Like there was a story in May 2018 about him yelling at her at a cabinet meeting, like really intensely for a very long time about why she didn't close the border. There is a more specific version of that that we're beginning to get the details filled in of. Of There is some number of things that Donald Trump wants done or that Stephen Miller wants done that Nielsen said were illegal or would be disastrous, right. um, which is why the general counsel of DHS is either, and this is where my just having gotten off a plane is not helpful, he's either left or like is the screws are to him to leave because one White House source called him, quote unquote, a chicken shit lawyer because he kept saying, oh, we can't do this, oh, we can't right. do that. Um, Donald Trump appears to believe that we should just go through separating families all the time because without wanting to like speculate too much about why Donald Trump believes this, he appears to think that that is the one effective way to deter people from coming to the U.S. One report yesterday had him saying, said he said privately that like we should separate families whether or not they come to ports of entry to present themselves for asylum. We should separate families even if they're arrested in the U.S., which like both of those are not. It is not that neither of those ever happens now, but it was definitely clear that Donald Trump decided has decided that family separation is what stops unauthorized immigrants from like being or staying from coming to or staying in the U.S. There are also a lot of other things that are slightly more policy specific. The, the version of family separation that could actually go back into effect, because obviously there has been a judicial ruling uh, that not only require the the government to to reunite families, but also like stop further family separation. There is a, it's not a loophole. It's it's a deliberate valve in there that if parents are given the choice between being detained with their children or being separated so that the child can go to the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is not a detention. Right you know, not a detention situation, like that is a choice that they can make, but that choice has to be presented to them. So that the administration hasn't been forcing it, but it's been floated in the ether that that policy called binary choice could be forced. There are also a bunch of other things dealing with uh, the standards to let people seek asylum in the United States instead of just deporting them without a court hearing about other things that don't really have to do with people coming into the U.S., like uh, regulations about immigrant welfare use. Uh, that appear to kind of be Stephen Miller being extremely fed up with some of the current DHS leadership and 
deciding that this is pushing them all out. And that gets to the kind of third level of the story here, which is that Stephen Miller, as an individual, appears to have decided that he is more equipped to carry out Trump's agenda than anyone else and is pushing out even people who had generally also been towing the administration line. Um, one of the names being floated that he that Miller kind of has put the screws to is Francis Cisna, who's the head of Citizenship and Immigration Services, the agency that deals with legal immigration, who has been generally seen as one of the true believers in the administration, who has done a ton more to kind of slow down legal immigration to the U.S. than, frankly, than Stephen Miller ever has in terms of, you know, he's not someone who's been in a policymaking position. But um, yeah, that, so, I mean, this, so this, this thing is, is interesting. So there's, because... there's a like, level of this that is just kind of Stephen Miller is feeling himself. Um, and I think it's it's still, I mean, it's still a little bit tricky and we may never really be able to tell how much of it is really a specific policy dispute and how much of it is just kind of I'm picturing the um, the last scene in Aladdin mm -hmm. when Jafar becomes a genie and is sure. just, you know, like all of a sudden this man who has had ideas about what he wants to make the world be has, has these phenomenal cosmic powers. Well, so, I mean, clear evidence for, for the genie theory, I would say, right, is both that Cisna is evidently on this hit list. And then you've had like Chuck Grassley and Mark Krikorian, yes. both like serious immigration hawks saying like, no, no, no. Like, don't fire this person for right. no reason. Right. I mean, it's just not worked for Grassley for a couple of sure. years. He's definitely, he is, you know, professional immigration restrictionists or professional hawks or whatever um, have had a weird relationship with Trump, right? Like, they understand that Donald Trump can't necessarily be trusted to not just change his mind 180 degrees at any given time. I think especially on so, legal immigration. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and so they have seen... Uh, Cisna, who has, you know, a career in immigration, you know, in the immigration system as somebody who knows things and knows how to get things done. But the other thing that's weird is that they're firing the head of the Secret Service. Yeah. And that that is where I tell Well, so this appears to be purely the, the, the head of the U.S. Secret Service. This is obviously not about immigration policy because the Secret Service doesn't do immigration policy. But this is a John Kelly guy. Right. He was a general in the Marine Corps who Kelly knows from the military, who then went to work for Customs and Border Protection after the military. And Kelly, who was DHS secretary, I, obviously Trump did not come into office with like a roster of former Marine generals who he might like to run the Secret Service. And like John Kelly put this guy in this job and they are cleaning house, right? Like th there's some aspect of this that is like taking care of all the family business. And the Secret Service is in the Department of Homeland Security. The guy running the Secret Service is a John, I, I wouldn't even call him a John Kelly protege, but like John Kelly brought him into the administration. And so now he is gone, right? So all of that is true, but there is one other data point, And I don't know if this means anything and it probably doesn't, but it does seem interesting. Um, Ron Vitello, the dude who was, who was, is still, I think, despite everything, yeah, acting, acting director of ICE, before he was appointed to be the acting director of ICE, was at Customs and Border Protection. Right. And was a longtime Customs and Border Protection dude. So in addition to the head of the Secret Service having worked at CBP, this other dude who is now kind of in the crosshairs was at CBP. And both of them overlapped with the commissioner of CBP, who is about to become the acting secretary of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan. So it's weird 
that there is such frustration with some people who are career, like Vitello was a longtime, you know, border officer, but not so much frustration that they're getting rid of the current head of that agency, who is also a career dude, uh, former Obama you know, he was like he was in leadership yes, under Obama. It's the closest fact, thing to a deep state um, holdover it's, among the whole I group. I mean, but it's it is definitely an interesting data point that that appears to be the exception to the decapitation, at least so far. Like nobody appears to believe that McAleenan is going to get the per- permanent nomination. And who knows whether this is just they're going to get mad. And, you know, it's it's like it's I don't think a whole lot of people are thinking that this is going to be a permanent solution, um, that we are going to be in the current staffing situation. So wait, for a I, I want to know but... one more weedsy thing and then and then turn the microphone over to Jane. Yeah. Okay, which is the last person on the hit list. So when it first came out that Trump was going to designate McAleenan as acting secretary, everybody was kind of like, okay, fair enough, you know, because we've we've already litigated through a lot of Trump active designations. But then people looked at the statute, right? And the statute creating the Department of Homeland Security has specific language preempting presidential discretion and stating that the undersecretary for management, who's Claire Grady, um, must become acting secretary. So nobody knew what the deal was with that. But then about 24 hours later, it started turning out that, uh, at least in the rumor mill, that, well, she's getting fired too. And right. Trump does not have the legal authority to promote McAleenan over her head to be acting secretary, but he does have the authority to fire her. And if she were fired, then the discretion comes back. Right. And so it's not clear at all to me from these reports if she is, in fact, not getting fired. Uh, and we're going to have some litigation about this. Although, unlike in the other disputes, it's not like Democrats care or like particularly want her— rather than him. So it may not even happen. Um, Maybe she's deliberately being pushed out as part of a purge. Uh, Maybe she's being pushed out as part of a purge just to cover up the fact that they were sloppy and didn't check the statute. I I, I mean, the sort of most Veep-esque kind of possibility here is that, like, nobody did their homework on this. They put forward this idea that's illegal. And now rather than admit that they made a mistake— like, they're just going to add one more person? Because as long as you're firing everybody, like, you may as well fire her, too. I would bet it is probably a combination of that. And um, we know that Donald Trump likes people in leadership who look like they're out of, quote, unquote, central casting. Yes. And while Nielsen did not really fit that model and while the undersecretary of management, you know, doesn't have the kind of, like, law enforcement bearing of a career border official, McAleenan very much does. And so it would not surprise me if Donald Trump kind of had his heart set on making this, you know, upright, soldierly bearing dude the current acting head of Homeland Security. And they had to kind of, you know, and just kind of tweeted it out before they had really figured out how legally they were going to make yeah, that Yes, so a, a man who used to be a border officer versus a woman who has spent most of her career as a Coast Guard administrator has right. a clear difference in, 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 in affect. Yes. <laughs> right. So I, I want to back up a little bit let's, and maybe I think back. maybe we should take a break. And then I want to talk about like putting all of these events in a larger context. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. 
We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So something that's interesting to me, and I think a, a great a piece I was reading um, in the conservative magazine commentary was on this point, which is that in general, the Trump administration, when the Trump administration has wanted to do something on a very on various other matters, uh, say tax cuts or housing, even like there has been some degree of like, oh, OK, we should hire people who know how to do this or yes. like who have some understanding of how to do this. Um, and you saw that, you know, you saw a lot of hits from kind of the far right on that because they were like, why do you keep hiring all these people from Goldman Sachs? Right. And the response is, well, they know how to do the things that you do at Goldman Sachs and thus can do those same things for the Trump administration. But on the issues of immigration, you know, when you have someone like Nielsen, who is very much in line with the administration's stated priorities, but also keeps saying things like, maybe we shouldn't do this because it's illegal. Right. And how in this particular respect, it seems as if immig- the administration treats immigration as basically this is how you know, we want to do this in a way that not necessarily the courts would approve of, but our base would approve of. And you know, you saw that in kind of the reporting about Trump saying, like, you know, we'll just ignore the judges. We'll just do, like which is a very well, let's, much- let's explain that. What was that reporting in case in case people didn't see it? Um, so it was some reporting from Jake Tapper at CNN, whose sources told him that Trump in private said that if the courts or judges said that this particular immigration restriction was illegal, you, that we should just ignore right, that. No, was, yeah. So, so this is Trump on Friday at a uh, like, you know, kind of doing a, a bit of a border tour in Calexico. 
you know, and this is he was publicly, you know, this is when he was like publicly going out and saying, yeah. we should just say we're full, apparently privately told a bunch of Border Patrol agents that they should just not let people come in and say they have to go back and like, don't worry about what the judge says. And right. these dudes apparently, once Trump left, had to ask their superiors, should we consider that an order? It's coming from the president of the United States. And their superiors said, do not do that. You are still bound by court decisions. The liability is on you individually if you deviate from that, which is that is, in fact, the correct interpretation of what U.S. law currently permits. Right. But that, you know, it's always difficult to know with these Trump things, right? Because, like, Trump says so much stuff and there's so much whatever. And you can easily imagine hyperventilating about this, like Trump is out giving illegal orders and now he's firing sort of not just the secretary, but the like whole top management layer to try to pull off some like huge illegal, I don't know what. Right. There, uh, there with was the border patrol. A lot of like... and, and then there's another version of it where it's like Trump goes around, he's in a meeting with some rank and file guys, he pumps them up. And then as soon as he leaves the room, all the like frontline managers are like, nah, guys, don't do that. And everyone's fine with it. Right. Right. And it's just like, <laughs> It is hard to know, right? I mean, we had going back to the very first days of the first version of the travel ban, right? A lot of questions about rank and file people well outside the lines of the law in terms of how they were yanking people off flights, how they were detaining people. Right. Like, like using that. using the I would say using the sketchiness of executive orders and the lack of any internal preparation or training. Like, remember, John Kelly, who was at the time head of DHS, didn't know it was going into effect until he saw it getting signed. Like there's definitely the question has been in that space between what the president says and officially signs and how it's being implemented on the ground. How much is internal structure working to restrain? And I I think we also know from a million stories about, you know, police officers' interactions with criminal suspects that the ex-post disciplinary action of the law on uniform law enforcement officials is pretty weak, right? Like, a good thing to say if you are a frontline supervisor and you believe that your officers have just received an illegal order from the president is like, no, 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 don't listen to him. Like, the culpability is on you. Like, they, that's that's good management. Like, I, I think those guys are doing their jobs well. Now, the real world question of, like, whether there are going to be negative legal consequences for rank-and-file border agents who go do something sketchy in the desert, like, eh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty dubious on that, right? Like, if you actually have the top political leadership of the country deliberately trying to jazz up rank-and-file officials to go do illegal stuff, I don't think the idea that, like, judges are going to tell them not to should give you all that much of a sense of, of reassurance. Um, okay, so I want to get back to the kind of like litigation risk side yeah. of this because I think that there is a lot to address on that level, but I think it's also important to talk through the way that that things like it is not exactly as if everything the Trump administration has done on immigration has been a post facto justification for things coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. There have been some of those. It looks like the president is con is now getting more insistent, right? Between the fact that we came very, very close to border closure 
last week. And apparently Trump really, you know, basically all but ordered Nielsen to do it. And Nielsen said she didn't. This is, you know, bear in mind that a lot of the kind of internal stories we're, we're talking about right now are things that are coming out in the wake of this kind of, you know, purge or house cleaning or whatever. So it's not it's totally possible that people are just putting things out there that make their preferred principle seem self seem, you know, noble. Um but even taking that with a grain of salt, it was very clear that Donald Trump really relishes the idea of closing the border. Uh he did in fact insist on Central American aid uh cu- getting cut, which is ironically something that his current acting DHS secretary has been very vocal in not wanting to do. Um but there's, you know, the, even though he's been more insistent about that, there's there has been kind of this like layer of okay, we're gonna gonna let the president do what he say say what he says, and we're just gonna plow along on our own. There is also a great deal of you know the, the there's been a lot of I would say tactical like innovation things that have never been tried before in terms of cracking down on people entering the United States and seeking asylum, um, including not just the widespread use of family separation, but the uh, attempt to legally proclaim that nobody who came between ports of entry could seek asylum in the U.S., including the policy of making Central American asylum seekers return to Mexico while their hearings until their hearings came up on the calendar, which just got enjoined by a judge last night. Although it doesn't go into effect for the injunction doesn't go into effect for a few days, so there have been all of these things that have kind of been incubated in inside the Trump administration. And there has been reporting that on some of them, there have been fights within the government about how far they can go. And that those fights have have often been between DHS and DOJ, um, which is, you know, which not only has some role in immigration, but takes a an active role in regulation and in preparing for potential Legal litigation defense, on right. things. Right. Um, and Contrary to what you would think, you would assume that like DHS would be the gung-ho law enforcement, let's do this, and DOJ would be like, no, we're the ones who have to stand up in court for it, let's not. Reporting has indicated that on a couple of occasions, DOJ has been the more aggressive partner in that, and DHS has been worried that it won't work, which is in line with what we're hearing now, that like the DHS lawyers were the quote-unquote chicken shit ones, Uh, but does raise the question of whether there are people who are willing to continue to like, find ways to put this stuff into regulation, to write memos, you know, the Remain in Mexico policy or the migrant protection protocols of, you know, returning people was not officially a regulation, but they did put out the agencies that were responsible for implementing it did put out memos. It was fairly, there was more secrecy there than there has been for other stuff. But even then there was something put down in writing. So the extent to which this is really just operating in the kind of penumbra of what the president says and then agents do doesn't it's not we're not really at the days of the first travel ban. They appear to have realized that that is a very good way to get held up in court very quickly and that having some kind of internal process and training doesn't just protect kind of middle management, but also ends up protecting keeping the government from getting enjoined immediately. It'll only get enjoined eventually. And they have like a fighting chance maybe at the Supreme Court. The other thing I do want to point out is that like, look, Donald Trump does not appear to understand the literal physics of people coming to the U.S., right? Like sure. the reason that you that the Remain in Mexico policy took so long to implement and that it was limited in its implementation was because the Mexican government had to agree to take people back into its custody. Otherwise, they would just have been physically left on the bridge at the port of entry. That would 
become a PR nightmare for both countries and a violation of international and U.S. law. When you're not actually like taking them and putting them back, but just telling them to go somewhere, they don't have to go anywhere. It is definitely plausible that Donald Trump thinks that if you tell them to leave and they don't leave, that you're justified in like doing whatever to them. That is not true. And I do not think that rank that like even a fairly gung ho Border Patrol agent is going to go that far without some more explicit guidance from their manager on that on that point. And so, you know, I do think that while it's plausible to think that there is some kind of emboldening that is happening, the less worrisome thing there is Donald Trump saying, well, you should just tell them not to come in. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that's that's totally operational. I I don't know. I just I, I worry about people getting hurt. You know, I worry that the reporting says that, like, the one thing that really sweetened Trump on Nielsen during her time in office was the tear gassing incident. You know what I mean? That, like, what Donald Trump wants, what what Donald Trump has too much restraint to say is that he thinks there should just be indiscriminate violence inflicted on people who cross between ports of entry and that that will induce them not to leave. Now, he is more disciplined than that. He is even more disciplined than travel ban 1.0 Trump, right? And he is working on things and it's but he really believes in the child separation, right? This so it's like he wants a deterrent. Right? He wants to make people think I'm not going to chance it. Yeah. Right? Which means something bad has to happen to you when when you do chance it. And the detention, you know, the, the family separation possibly watered down as this binary choice, right? That is like a groping toward some kind of solution to create like a really acutely painful outcome to families that arrive here and press asylum claims. And to the extent to which like that is the animating force of what you're you're trying to do, right? I mean, I just like I I worry. I don't I don't want to like spread undue panic and alarm because we will have to see what happens. But it just it feels to me like that's where we are going. And that in particular, like we're firing the general counsel. Like we're 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 sick and tired, right? We shouldn't have these immigration judges, is something Trump keeps saying, right? Um Ignore the judges if they tell you something is what Trump said to Border Patrol agents, like just firing the lawyers in the agency, right? Like he's sick and tired of being constrained by the law. And in the issue with um, Secretary Ross and complying with congressional oversight requests, with the IRS and complying with the tax requests, right? He's growing increasingly confident, right? That like just ignoring demands that are placed on him is the strategy to go forward, right? And and you see, right, this is far afield, right? But Mitt Romney, we know, was critical of Donald Trump as an individual. Like, for years, he maintained that posture. And one of the things he said time and time again during his Never Trump days was that he thought Donald Trump should release his tax returns. Then last week, House Democrats made a legally mandatory statement that the IRS had to hand over their tax returns. And Mitt Romney, he didn't just run and hide and refuse to address the issue. He went on television and said that Trump was right to refuse, right? And that to me is just like a signpost of where things are are going. Now, in a certain way, like 
that's far field, but this is like a guy who we know who has said so many times that he disagrees with Trump on the underlying substance, not just on the process, being like, yeah, go for it, Trump. Like, just ignore the law. And there have been so much like overreaction on Twitter to things Trump has done over the years. Um, and so much, I think, like pushback from Dara and some other smart people that I but I I now feel like we are under reacting. I understand where you're coming from. And I think that I, you know, I have definitely I think that if you'd asked me 48 hours ago, I mean, like I, and I wrote 48 hours ago, like there's not anything policy-wise that can be done more than what they're already doing. And I do think that there is there are particular things that they have demonstrated that they are interested in doing that are probably not legal, that it's not going to stop them from doing. I think that people have a tendency to run toward the most horrific possibility rather than the most realistic, rather than the possibility that has the greatest chance of happening. And I think, frankly, that if he wants to do the indiscriminate violence thing, he's going to have to purge a lot more people. Like, there is a reason that you're not going to get, like, a career CBP dude to, you're not going to get Kevin McAleen in to authorize that. You're not going to get a lot of other people who are at CBP who have been there prior to Trump to be okay with that. And so I think that at this point, my priors on that are being, uh, are thinking not just about who is getting fired, but who isn't. But I think the other thing is that the, Possibility of spectacular violence is very, I think, emotionally uh, compelling. It is less it is less likely to happen than like another child is to die in custody. That is, there there really are concerns about the things that are likely to continue to happen that the Trump administration has shown no interest in alleviating or is interested in exacerbating, uh, actually hurting people. And I think that the the idea of migrants getting mowed down or of people being in concentration camps or whatever is occupying a larger amount of imaginative space than things that are going to have like meaningful lasting psychic or physical or lethal impacts on people that uh, aren't quite as spectacular in nature. So I, I want to, I don't know if we need to take a break right now, and I perhaps we do, but I want to go back to your point about Mitt Romney, because I think it's a, it's illustrative of not just how I think a lot of mainline Republicans handle this particular issue, but how mainline Republicans handle a lot of different issues. Beloved brands know customer relationships are everything. That's why over 130,000 trust Clavio to power smarter digital relationships across their websites, emails, SMS, and reviews. And now there's Clavio AI, your guide to smarter insights, decisions, work, and results. Brands like Everyman Jack trust Clavio AI to personalize product recommendations that keep customers coming back. Discover Clavio AI at Clavio.com slash box. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com backslash box. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. 
host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's managing director for legislative and regulatory affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. So the point you were making about how Mitt Romney really wanted Trump's tax returns a couple of years ago and now seems less interested really goes to they're obviously in kind of the rank and file Trump base, if we think of it, you know, the people who are supportive of Donald Trump, not on a particular issue, but just kind of on Donald's Trumpiness. There are people who think that way. And there are people who are kind of, you know, close to this administration who think this way. But there are a lot of conservatives and Republicans who have a very transactional relationship with the Trump administration. Right. Therefore, their argument is if Trump does thing that I like, I am less concerned about things that he does that I don't like. So you're more willing to let things go because it turns out that Trump did not turn into the Huey Long of 2017 and become this giant populist who actually was going to provide health care for everyone, which means that, you know, while a lot of Trump's base is unhappy with that, a lot of mainline conservatives are actually pretty pleased, um, especially you know, with you could make an argument that this also extends to immigration issues. But for a lot of conservatives, it doesn't. And so with Mitt Romney and with a bunch of other, you know, Lindsey Graham, I could make this argument also about because Trump and the Trump administration have done things that conservative Republicans like, conservative Republicans are therefore more likely to say things like, well, his tax returns don't matter. However, the immigration restrictionism has not thoroughly filtered throughout the Republican base and particularly through Republicans in Congress. Right. Obviously, there are you know major immigration restrictionists in Congress, you know, the Tom's Cottons of the world. But yeah, I, I mean, think, I think we do have evidence that like Trump can get, you know, Purdue, for example, on board with his stuff on immigration pretty easily. Oh, sure. Yeah. But then there are still a host of Republicans who for whom this is not what this is not their issue. However, it is Trump's issue. Right. And I think that that it presents itself an interesting challenge because this is an issue that if you're like, I want tax cuts, I want uh, the embassy, I, I want the embassy in Israel to be moved. I want these specific things. And the Trump administration has done those specific things. Ergo, there are certain things like I'm way less eager to see the full Mueller report. I'm way less interested in his tax returns. However, Immigration restrictionism of this extent, especially with the kind of implication of just ignoring judges or you know, kind of that general atmosphere, that's not something that a lot of the conservatives whom I talk to, that's not one of the transactions they are willing to really get into. The border wall, I think, is something that they're willing to get behind to some extent, though when you start really getting into the brass tacks of how that was going to be paid for or how it would be paid for now. You're not getting as much kind of broad support th that you do just for the idea of the border wall. With respect to DHS and with respect to kind of the willingness to ignore the courts, I think that that's one of those moments in which that plays extremely well with like Mark Levin and certain conservative commentators who are very popular on, say, talk radio. But it does not play as well with congressional Republicans for whom they have made the decision that there are certain transactions they are supportive of 
with with regard to the Trump administration and certain transactions they are not supportive of. So, like, I think that it's true that they would they don't want that. But I think the question is whether they would rather stop it, because it appears to me that the that elected Republicans have adopted the Trump administration's narrative of what's currently going on at the border, which is not only that it like is something that needs immediate action, but that the key problem is people coming who don't qualify for asylum and that therefore more needs to be done to like stop those people from being able to seek asylum. That is going to require like either the ignoring the court stuff or the and that doesn't necessarily need to mean like mowing people down can just mean, you know, having an artificially like illegally high standard for who is allowed to file an asylum application. But the alternative would be to change the law or change regulation so that it is, you know, to actually like bring it in line with what they want to do. That would require congressional action. It is not at all clear that that Republicans are interested in pushing that through as a legislative change or even really talking about it much. So if the choices are you know, something is done to solve this problem not by us or something is done to solve this problem by us, I generally bet on members of Congress taking the not by us option. So the the, the last thing I want to say on this, right, is that I don't think we should discount the possibility that Stephen Miller and whatever his friends at the Justice Department are, are just analytically correct. And the Homeland Security lawyers are not being uh, optimistic enough about exactly how crazy the judges the Trump administration has put on the federal courts are. I just think that they're aware that at this point, and without getting into uh, details about the like jurisdictional stuff involved here, at this point, we have a couple of cases out of the Northern District of California that have established that a nonprofit that serves asylum seekers does have standing to sue over a policy that restricts wait, wait, wait. asylum seekers. So when you say judges, you really would just have to mean like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Right. But I mean, also whoever's going on to the night, you know, just in terms of like the big game, right? That like, I can see a smart, competent, well-qualified DHS lawyer saying exactly what you're saying there, right? That it's like, look, like we litigate this stuff in California. We know the Ninth Circuit precedent. Like we are trying to do like what a general counsel does, right? If we go to our general counsel at the company here and you're like, hey, we want to do this thing. Is it illegal? And if the general counsel's judgment is like, yeah, probably the courts are going to say that's illegal, then you like you probably don't do it, right? And if you come back with the argument like, well, if we do this illegal thing and then get sued and then go through years of appeals, I think there's like a chance that yeah. we win 5-4 in the Supreme Court. You know, the suits are going to be like, let's not do that, Matt, right? Or maybe it's like a blockbuster story, right? Maybe it's the Pentagon Papers and right. we do do it, right? But like day to day, you try to avoid a litigation cluster, right? right? But a politician, right, a a valid thing for a White House senior aide to say is these lawyers have the wrong mentality. This is our Pentagon Papers. Right. Right. Like we want to do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. We understand that we're going to get held up in court. We understand that we have an unfavorable jurisdictional thing here. But we feel that by and large, like we are putting a lot of judges on the bench. We think that the bulk of those judges agree with our position on this. We think we can win it at the Supreme Court. We hope to turn over the Ninth Circuit at some point, right? And like, we want to have this legal fight. And we think that ultimately we are going to win it. And alternatively, like, we are making enough noise about nationwide injunctions that at some point the Supreme Court is going to ban nationwide yeah, injunctions. Yeah, you can't do that. But I mean, that just like you want to go do this, this thing. And 
you know, it's just like you never know, right? Like in some ways, I, I think like the Democratic justices in the Supreme Court turned out to be um, more willing to enjoin certain kinds of immigration stuff than you would have expected previously. But we've also seen conservatives on a variety of topics be more aggressive than my friends who are law school professors would tend to predict. And like the five Republicans on the Supreme Court will put up exactly as much resistance to Donald Trump as Mitt Romney strikes me as like a pretty good bet on on all of this. And so, I mean, I don't know, like we're going to have to see, right? But yeah, yeah, I think and I think the other question here is like, what are the things that they actually think of as the Pentagon Papers? Because the Trump administration has just been so ludicrously aggressive procedurally on a lot of court cases that, like, even the 5-4 Supreme Court, you know, told them that they couldn't just skip the Ninth Circuit on right. the asylum ban case. So there is there's a certain concern about uh, whatever the opposite of working the refs is, like alienating the refs, that when you claim that every little thing you're doing is the Pentagon Papers, sure. that when the actual Pentagon Papers hit, that the, you know, the the judges will say, yeah, but you guys don't really, we, you are not a reliable assessor of the importance of your own policy. And you also can't just misfire, right? I mean, when you think about what is the core of like the Federalist Society's work, like, being tough on the border is pretty out there on the periphery. Uh, you know, so, I mean, they could lose. The changes to legal immigration aspect of this, which it's, it's not 100% clear what the substance of it is, is interesting to me, though, because this seems to be the point that's very contentious inside sort of Republican land, right? That, like, Donald Trump frequently claims to be a proponent of expanded legal immigration. Uh, his administration has repeatedly moved to restrict legal immigration and has backed legislative proposals to restrict it even more. And and this is like – and the smart like restrictionist intellectuals at least claim to be bullish on skilled immigration. Uh, but Trump-era USCIS has actually been quite – tough and you know right the, so I mean, like the, the, the problem here is that the there the h1b visa which is the primary visa for skilled immigration has is also like there are known ways uh, in which that is used to for like you know, temp mills. And so in cracking in, it is one of those things where are you cracking down on everybody or are you cracking down on the bad actors? Right. Well, I think, no, but so the move to make it harder for the spouses of H1B oh, visa yeah, the, the H4 move is, that is, that's an ideological thing for sure. Right. You know, so, I mean, this is, if you took some of these guys at their words, right, the absolute last thing you would want to do is prevent a person who is present in the country anyway, as most likely fairly skilled from like working and contributing. But, you know, they're doing that. Um, and there seem I don't entirely understand, like, why Miller wants to get rid of this guy. Um, I mean, I mean, I don't think at, it is known. Why. If you look at the things that that is if you look at the list of things the White House wants to do that they were being prevented from doing by DHS, uh, a couple of them are USCIS. The, uh, the and, and and not to say they were necessarily prevented. Like some of this stuff are things that were drafted and published as draft regulation and just haven't been finalized yet. But like, there's also kind of I think I don't know whether this is an ideological split, whether this is a uh, just the kind of 
more conservative assessment of the law versus a more imperative assessment of the law. Or the other thing here is somebody who is running a an agency, a component, who is responsible for that workforce and who is responsible for the mandate of that agency. Mm-hmm. Like if you're we're seeing reports of like they're floating having border patrol doing credible fear interviews, that's something that USCIS traditionally does, right? Like if there are issues in which the White House thinks that your agency can't be trusted to do things the right way. That's not just like an insult to the people under you. That's also uh, your assessment of law and policy is going to matter less. So I think there are like structural reasons that a head of USCIS might be opposed to the way that the White House is trying to commandeer the process. Right. And so then the the last thing on this is that the reporting – Last week had been that Trump was considering designating an immigration czar, um, which for those who don't know, a czar does not mean uh, a 19th century Russian empire, but rather that you have designated a White House official to be in charge of a policy area that crosscuts multiple federal agencies. Right. right. Which which often means that you do not – that like – you are not creating an official office for them, and so you don't have to get them through congressional. Right, S- but so then yesterday's reporting was that Stephen Miller has been officially, unofficially designated to this role. Right, that he was told, or or that administration officials have been told that Miller is de facto the White House immigration czar. So insofar as topics cross-cut from DHS, which has sort of primary immigration responsibility, DOJ has some significant lingering immigration responsibilities. Uh, The State Department, though, has like a role in this because we are talking about an international situation um, that, that Miller is like in charge of all of it and is authorized to boss around all these different various federal agencies, um, which is, uh, I mean, that would be quite an ascension for a a, a young man who is, yeah, is, is 33 years old, does not have a law degree and was last working in the, like, as a communications staffer. For Jeff Sessions, yes. That, like, he's going to run Latin America policy for the State Department? It is, I mean, it is extremely TBD. I really do think that this is the point where... Um, also, Miller you know, my, may be the source for those stories, and it may not be true. Right, right. Yeah, who knows, right? Um, but, you know, my line on this, even before Trump won the presidency, is that Donald Trump clearly did not believe in any kind of restrictions on presidential power and clearly thought that his job was just to tell people what to do and they would have to do it. And actually getting things done in the federal government requires several levels of people telling the person below them, the president says you have to do this. Here is a little bit more operational detail on what that would look like. And if you're getting rid of the people who are who have for the last couple of years been doing that work of translation. And like sometimes you say hey, you have to tell you have to like pretend the president didn't say anything. And right. other times you translate what the president said into something that is actually feasible. And sometimes you just go, oh, OK, this is what we're doing now. I'm going to tell my underlings that if you get rid of the people who have done that because you think they haven't been willing to be your yes men enough, then it's just a question of are you picking the right people and how many of them are you getting rid of? Right, exactly. And I, I don't I, know. I think that like you have to get rid of a lot of freaking people, but it's not it, – I think that that's kind of the way to, to look at it about removing the number of pieces you have to remove in order to have something where either the people who are 
who you're giving orders to are going to enthusiastically say yes, aren't going to feel they have the power to say no, or just like it is so understaffed that there's nobody in the room saying, hey, I don't think we, I think that we need to like give a little more operational detail to this. Yeah, it it is interesting because I feel as if that Trump came into office with the understanding that he could quote unquote, run the country much the way that one would run a business. And in order for him to do so, so far, he has attempted to kind of remove people who will tell him that that does not entirely work. However, he cannot yet remove, you know, the judicial branch of the United States federal government. And so I think it's been an it's an ongoing challenge of his own understanding of presidential power, the understanding that the people who voted for him have of presidential power and that relationship impacting how everyone else has to has to deal with this administration. Well, and I also think, you know, he seems frustrated not just by formal and informal constraints on presidential power, but by the reality that there are linkages across issue areas, right? So Trump is currently taking out his frustration on Department of Homeland Security personnel, right? But it's clear that one source of Trump's frustration is that people keep telling him that this close the border idea is not good. Yes. And but yes. actually the people telling him that are the economic policy people. This is not a case of Trump is saying, shut down the port of entry at El Paso, and the DHS general secretary is saying, no, sir, that's illegal. It's like a broad array of stakeholders are saying that's a bad idea, right? right? And they're often saying it's a bad idea, not because Trump is like narrowly mistaken, that that would make it harder for things from Mexico to enter the United States, but because there's There's a lot going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, right? And in general, right, there's a lot going on with the U.S. relationship with the nation of Mexico, right? Like these are complex things. And this has always been sort of the problem for Trump that like he wants to have a trade relationship with China that is just about trade. But then he also has North Korea diplomacy, right? And and this is where you you just get things in America, right? Like the issues spill over onto one another. And like it's a I don't know, it's a hard job. Yeah, no, this this is though also where how long it is before they nominate a permanent uh, replacement for Nielsen and who that replacement is is super relevant because uh nominating your customs and border protection head as your acting DHS secretary is not generally assumed to be the way to get people more willing to close the border, right? right? Um, especially because, like, Macklin came from the office that runs the ports. Um, get, get, getting, say, Rick Perry, whose name has been floated as a permanent replacement, to be your new DHS secretary, like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the former governor of Texas is not a super gung-ho person about closing ports of entry. Right. Um, it's... you. The num- the person you'd have to find who would be willing to do that, who is also not going to have any legal assessment that differs from Stephen Miller's on what is and isn't legal. I don't know what that universe is. Although there's two sides to that, right? Like Rick Perry, I feel like would probably not want to close the border. At the same time, if Rick Perry did want to close the border, that would carry a lot more weight in an yes, interagency yes. process, right? Having a former border officer who is serving as acting DHS secretary on the basis of a possibly illegal appointment come in and be in an argument with the Treasury secretary about whether or not it's a good idea to close the border, right? Like you're you're dealing with a weak hand there, right? Like, no, I, I 
I agree. Like the Perry thing is probably not going to fly, but precisely because that seems like it wouldn't fly, if you did put it together, right? Like that's bringing the big coalition together, right? The reason Obama kept Rick Gates on as defense secretary is that he thought a holdover defense secretary from the Bush administration would help him sell withdrawal from Iraq as a policy in internal government battles, right? And so, I mean, who knows what Trump is doing, right? But I I feel like to the extent that what Trump really wants is for people to tell him this border closure is a good idea, it's like the problem is not inside the four walls of that Homeland Security building, really, so much as it is that there's like a million other things happening, right? right. Where like people just like the whole American auto industry doesn't want to collapse. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, generally, Donald Trump's approach to coalition building is once you endorse me, then you do whatever I say. Like, you know, the the paradigmatic example of this is when he got really mad that the NRA didn't support more restrictions on uh, you know, on like people buying guns if they were on the no fly list because he had decided that that was a good idea and they had endorsed him. And therefore, of course, they should go along with whatever he wanted on their issue. So, you know, I, yes, that runs up against a great deal of political and policy reality. Donald Trump really hates being told what he can't do or what other people don't want him to do. Donald Trump doesn't have a lot of interest in the continued political fortunes of the Republican Party. I like, I don't know where this. It goes, dudes. <laughs> nice. Well, if you know where it goes, tell us in the Weeds Facebook group. If you don't know where it goes, uh, we're going to keep watching and we will see what happens. Uh, thanks to all of you out there. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will return on Friday. Also, special note, we did not do a white paper today. I know this is Tuesday. We have one ready for you on Friday. It's just it's a Sarah Cliff special. She wanted to talk about it then. We'll see you Friday. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.